Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. I'm Hal Bryan and I'm the senior editor here at EAA for print and digital content and publications and one of your hosts. Uh, joining me as another host across the table, it is... Tom Sharpentier, EAA Government Relations Director. And uh, Tom, you will be uh, you will be switching hats uh, seamlessly and magically throughout this episode, sort of host to guest, guest to host. But speaking of guests, uh, you brought uh, you brought reinforcements, uh, a returning guest. Why don't you tell us who's sitting next to you? Yes, I've uh, once again brought my boss, uh, Sean Elliott here. Uh, Sean is the uh, vice president of advocacy and safety for EAA. Uh, he also runs our, our flight department, so the B-17, the B-25, the tri-motors, that all falls under Sean. Um, very important to me, the employee flying club, uh, that all falls under uh uh, under the flight department, which Sean has oversight of, but we're here today to talk about uh, remote ID and its its impact on model aviation. And Sean is a, in addition to being um, on top of all the advocacy stuff that we do, is a particularly uh, um, a good person to talk about this, given a very very long history in model aviation uh, throughout his entire life. So, Sean, welcome welcome back. Hey, great to be back, gang. Yeah, this is uh, uh, this is. We think it remains to be documented, but uh, there's uh, there's a rumor going around the studio here that this might be your fifth episode. This makes you a an ace, a green dot so, ace. A green I'm dot proud ace. of that. I'm going to wear that like a badge so, of honor. And uh, now, Tom, um, you once almost died on this show uh, after a coffee <laughs> incident. Um, is there any chance that you'll be fired live during the green dot since your boss is sitting right next to you? Well, I would certainly hope that wouldn't happen. And I did also uh, make sure that I, I uh, downed all my coffee before we went live. Okay. So well, good. Uh, well, I hopefully live to fight another so day. So keep, him, on both keep the controversy to a minimum. <laughs> well, we will consider this part of his performance review. How's that? I, I like that a lot. And, uh, and I have a lot to say about that. <laughs> I prepared a list. All right. So we're going to um, shift gears a little bit today. This is, uh, what I would uh, dare call a, a special episode of the Green Dot, focused on uh, on a particular issue, and that is uh, the FAA has uh, issued an NPRM, a notice of proposed rulemaking, uh, around the subject of remote ID for unmanned aircraft systems. So, uh, Sean, maybe you you start at, step us through first of all the the basics. Uh, you know. Sure. An NPRM is is what, and then what's the what's the meat of this before we get into the, the details? Uh, sure, Hal. So anytime the FAA I- intends to propagate a new significant rule, um, they go through a, a public process, uh, and it's called rulemaking. Um, once the FAA team, the rulemaking team, has completed what they think is the best first pass at a draft rule that goes through a number of processes within the FAA and within other, within other parts of the government, and then ultimately gets published to the public docket as a Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, or NPRM. Uh, the NPRM typically has a comment period anywhere between as little as 30 days and as much as 120 days. And this particular rule uh, package has a 60-day comment period. So it will end. It's been posted to the docket as of the first of the year, and it will end on March 2nd, the comment period itself. And then from there, they have to what's called disposition all of the public comments. And in this case, 
there's many. It's already up to, I believe, just under 8,000 comments to the docket and climbing. Now, uh, you said we had, uh, there's the 60-day comment period. Now, if I remember correctly, we and other groups uh, petitioned the FAA to say, we would like some more time to, uh, to put in those comments. Isn't we that did. And that's, that's something that's a, a typical normal request for a, a, a rule package that is this size and this complex. This is a 319-page document, and it has much uh, in the way of detail and complexity. And with the current 60-day window, that's literally five pages a day that need analysts, uh, you know, analyzing and review and, and uh, most importantly, a, a level of, of understanding and correlation that we can then provide um, uh, helpful feedback that says, you know what, you missed the following elements because they're not as good as they could be or they're going to be detrimental in, in many cases, and here's a better way to go about it. And that takes time. You have to understand it, sure. comprehend it, and be able to, to craft it within the FAA's language that says, this is a better way to do it. Please take this recommendation. Uh, if you just say this, this is terrible and this doesn't work and it stinks, um, it doesn't do any good. They just put that in one bucket and it doesn't go anywhere from there. So you have to provide meaningful comments to the docket. Right. And obviously they, they want that feedback because they, they, this is a notice of proposed rulemaking. This is not the announcement of a rule. Um, and they've, they've provided the 60 days, but, uh, but they said no to the extension, didn't they? They did. They did. Uh, they denied all of the organizations that requested extensions uh, a, a denial, uh, and it's that's concerning. Um, we'll we'll marshal through that, and we will still get our recommendations on the docket by the closure period. But it certainly is not a lot of time, and it, I I don't know what that foreshadows. Uh, it's concerning to see that they had zero flexibility. Um, in this process. And that's, by the way, I've been doing this quite some time. I've been the head of advocacy since 2010 um, and b involved with EA advocacy before that even. And I, this is the first time I've seen that happen. Really? First, first time? First time I've seen the FAA wow. not provide an adequate extension for a reasonable request based on factual data of why that request was necessary. And Sean, what was, what was really concerning was that, it, it, as, you know, as you mentioned, it's concerning in itself that they, that they rejected the request, but then a lot of the rationale that they provided was basically something to the effect that you know, an extra 30 or 60 days is unacceptable um, in relation to the threat posed by, uh, by, by unmanned aerial systems. In other words, this is something that is so important, it can't wait another month or two to be implemented, which does not bode well in our opinion, for the, uh, um, you know, for a carefully crafted and carefully considered rule, which is essential here. So let's, uh, I'll ask either one of you guys, uh, take, a, take a stab at uh, a simple explanation of what, uh, what remote ID is. And, you know, what problem is the FAA trying to solve with this? And, and what are the, uh, what's, what's in a nutshell, what is the essence of the, the proposed rule? So the problems I think everyone in the A world certainly understand, and and that's the the, the typical operations that have been done either uh, either nefariously or without uh, a proper knowledge or understanding uh, or carelessly uh, that have caused problems within the national airspace system. And I think as a full size aviator, there's nobody out there in, in the A's community that would say no remote ID is appropriate. We need some mechanism that helps curtail 
um, these operations that do cause problems in the NAS. Um, you know, the, the, the camera platform that uh, it pops up at the final approach corridor to McCarran uh, in, in Las Vegas that disrupts air traffic. Um, uh, you know, the, the activity at the Super Bowl right in the middle of a temporary flight restriction. You know, those kinds of things are not good. And we certainly need a mechanism to, to have the ability to curtail those. That being said, the way this rule is composed, it is a broad brush, one-size-fits-all approach. And it has really done so in a way that is going to, it stands to be potentially very damaging to a to long-standing aspects of UAS operations, which is model aviation and sure. traditional model aviation, uh, without thought. It, it, it was really a, a one-size-fits-all, and everyone's going to ultimately be there with this um, for the benefit of the NAS. And, and we think that's a, a reckless approach. So, Tom, can you speak to uh, um, a little bit more of the, the details of it? So on on the surface, the, the scenario Sean laid out, you know, here's a, here's a quadcopter with a camera on it on the final approach course in Las Vegas or, you know, any number of things hovering over the Super Bowl. Uh, what about this rule remedies that situation? Yeah, and, and I think it's important to also understand um, kind of, you know, I think in, in any kind of, uh, of an advocacy um, project, it's important to understand the motivations of everybody coming to the table, you know, whether you agree with them or not, um, because it, you know, that, that drives a lot of the decision making and really helps you understand um, where this is coming from. So, you know, the, the idea here is that um, a lot of these out of the box devices would have some way of identifying who's flying them. Uh, now, a lot of people would say, well, if somebody's doing something truly nefarious, um, they're not going to comply with this. That's absolutely correct. Um, but the, the idea here is that, um, again, the, in, in the, the theory that this is being promulgated under is that the people who just rip it out of the box and go fly it cluelessly, well, they're going to be identified because, you know, they're, they're operating the device as it was sold. Um, and they'll be able to be, you know, easily identified and corrected if they're flying inside of protected airspace or, or endangering aircraft or people on the ground, anything like that. Um, for people who disable these devices or fly them outside of the rule, that'll be very, um, that, that'll make it easier to identify bad actors to law enforcement because they can look up and they can see a device flying overhead. They can look on their little app or whatever it's going to be that, that identifies the users and say, oh, well, that, that's not an identified, there, there's, I have no record of that thing being authorized. You know, kind of like a car driving around with no license plate. Right? Sure. Um, so, so getting back to the, uh, to the MPRM, there's, there's, think of it as three different levels that this thing establishes. There's f full remote ID, which is a, a device on the drone or UAS, the, 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 the flying device itself, uh, that broadcasts the location and the identity of the user to, um, you know, to the outside, to, to, the, to the public, to law enforcement. Um, and that's either um, you know, directly from the device itself or it goes back to a transmitting station on the ground that, that broadcasts it. It does require a certain amount of connectivity, which is an issue that, um, uh, that, that we've, we've identified um, in, this, in this NPRM. Um, think of it, basically think of it as ADSB for drones, sure. right? Okay. Um, then there's limited remote ID, where basically you tell the FAA where you're going to be flying, and as long as you're not in an area that's going to be a problem airspace-wise, um, you can do that. Now, that sounds 
relatively reasonable. You know, you basically establish yourself as kind of a temporary flying site wherever it is you're going. The problem is that that's not good enough under this NPRM. You also have to have geofencing software on your uh, UAS itself that keeps it under the proposal here within a 400-foot bubble of the operator. Anybody who's flown a model aircraft knows that's not the way you fly a model aircraft. You know, you're standing to one side of the field, sure. and uh, what's well, frankly not really the way you fly a drone either. You know, you're standing kind of to one side, and you're and you're operating it within line of sight. You know, for you to have a bubble, obviously that's a de- it's an ever decreasing ceiling, out to 400 feet away from you. Right. Um, so that's that's just completely unworkable, and it requires that again in the context of a model aircraft, uh, you to have some fairly sophisticated. Um, essentially autopilot software on board that would keep it caged within that area. Um, And then there is what would probably apply to most model aircraft, kind of, um, which is the FAA-recognized identification area, which uh, we have um, turned, the acronym we've come up with is FRIA, F-R-I-A. So this would be a, a fixed flying site that would register with the FAA, and you could fly whatever you want in there, as long as, and I'm not making this up, it's 51% amateur built. So they basically just took exactly the, the same rules that we have under, you know, 21191G for, for uh, experimental aircraft, and they pasted it over into this. Uh, and now they, they're, they're def- they, they put that in the NPRM and actually explicitly solicited input about, you know, is this a workable solution? Sure. No, it isn't, and we'll, we'll be working on that. Um, so that does allow for traditional models to fly at fixed flying sites, but there's a bunch of very big problems with that. First of all, a lot of the uh, the aircraft that are being built today and flown today are um, sold as almost ready to fly kits that probably wouldn't meet a 51% standard. Sure. A lot of them, I mean, about half of my fleet, frankly, are uh, foamies. You know, I buy them. Um, yeah. The foam air foam model aircraft are very very sophisticated these days. You can buy it at the hobby shop, and within 15 minutes, you're flying it. Right. I've got. Right? I've got three at home that would meet that uh, meet that criteria, and then I've got uh, other stuff like little vapors and things like that that you you pull it out of the box and you connect the battery and you go. Well, that's not re- that's not exempt from the remote ID requirement, even if you're flying it at a at a recognized flying site. And then the problem is the approval process for the sites themselves. And I'll let Sean talk a little bit about that because um, uh, I think you've got the uh, the preamble, the rule in front of you, and it's a uh, uh, it's a um, it's pretty problematic. Yeah, the, the, the core of, Tom just did a really nice job describing all the elements of this, and the, the FRIA to us is, is truly the, the most important infrastructure piece uh, the, uh, out of all of it. I mean, there are other aspects as well. We, you know, from a, from a traditional model aviation standpoint, it's a major pathway into manned flight. And I mean, look, I have pictures of my son growing up through the years, and he started off with the most basic of hand launch gliders. He then went to, you know, a simple SIG Senior Rita with an OS-25 on the nose. He then went to a more sophisticated 60-sized Tiger, and and then he went to, and he sold a glider on his 14th birthday, full size, an ASK-21. Right. And then last May, I sold him in a Cessna 172 as his flight instructor, um, and he's off heading for a private pilot certificate, and he, he's interested in the Air Force Academy or Embry-Riddle and a career in aviation. These pathways are still still very, very relevant, um, and they work. The, the, you know, youth and aviation come through model aviation uh, from a wide variety um, of sources. To, to stifle this and to create what could be the death knell for this industry is, is a major, major mistake on the FAA's part. So when you read through the preamble of the NPRM and you look at what they've 
they've lensed the Frias as it's a temporary or interim interim solution that within a 12-month period will be minimized. And after that, will eventually go away in their point of view. And this is the, the, the infrastructure. This is the, the, the hubs of model aviation activity throughout the country. This needs to be a repeatable process that is adaptable for all the different kinds of operations, both year-round as well as special events. Like we have air shows, we have model aircraft fun flies and contests and aviation events that are equally as significant. And by the way, invite the public out and light that spark in youth and bring people into the fold of aviation, ultimately leading to career paths. We've got to enable that. We've got to protect this infrastructure. And the way they've laid this out is seriously flawed. So when you talk about uh, these FRIAs, these flying sites going away, I mean, the FRIA sounds to me like something where, you know, they're, they're uh, at least on paper, trying to provide some mechanism to maybe grandfather in existing flying sites. Only in the sense of an interim element. Okay. They even say that they will, after a period of time, they will not be changeable. Or f- so often clubs will have a, a change because their, lease, their land lease owner <clears throat> decides that they're going to do something different with the land. Sure. So, boom, now as a club, we've got to go out and find a new flying site. Right. The way this is written, there will be no accommodation for that. You will then be out of your ability to operate a FRIA at that point. Um, the intent of this, the, the, the community-based organization aspect is to provide the safety oversight that the community-based safety recommendations and guidelines provide, and yet they've focused the free application process through CBOs. Well, the FAA needs to own that. The important piece is that the, the entity is following that community-based organization's safety guidelines, not that they're actually funneled through a CBO. We have many in our EAA world that operate at private air parks, and they fly both full-size and model aircraft. Sure. That's that's what I did growing up. Absolutely. Myself and my brother living on a private Those airstrip. groups need to have a, the same type of a system to be able to establish that flying site as a FRIA and be recognized following a set of safety guidelines um, as an entity that's utilizing a FRIA. This this is like trying to, to do away with the airports throughout the country. Right. And then also saying that there, there shall never be another airport built. Yeah, exactly. And, and slamming the door on that. Yeah. So it's a one time it's a one time 12 month process to um, to 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 register a FRIA. Right. Uh, and then, like Sean said, yeah, you'd never be able to change it. You'd never be able to establish a new one. And the FAA can terminate it at any, any time. And their stated rationale was basically that, well, as we go along over the years, um, more and more aircraft will be capable of having remote ID. So we won't need FRIAs anymore. Wow. So when I think about my situation, um, you know, about a year ago, my wife and I bought a house. And one of the criteria as we were looking at different places around Oshkosh was, uh, does it have enough of a yard? I didn't need, you know, anything huge, but does it have enough of a yard where I can take my little foamies, my little horizon champ uh, that I bought from your son, Sean, as a matter of fact. Uh, and uh, uh, No, he's not a business major. I, I didn't even know what was happening. Suddenly I gave him a handful of 20s and I, I had a new airplane. Um uh, but my little foamies like that, and because uh, at, at an older place where I lived some years ago, one of my favorite things to do after a long day at work, just step out on the patio with a nice little, you know, this is a one and a half ounce, you know, 12 inch wingspan indoor model, but on a calm evening, throw it off the deck, fly it around in circles for 10, 15 minutes, maybe throw in another battery, do another 10, 15 minutes and, and call it good. And that was, uh, that was important to me in, in deciding to, to purchase a home. Now, in my case in particular, I'm also uh, 
well within the class delta airspace, which is whole brings a whole other set of uh, problems probably beyond the scope of today's thing. But even if I weren't, uh, at some point, at some point in the near future, uh, if that could be, is that going to be illegal? It it certainly could be. And the real problem with that is what what is required via the description descriptions in this NPRM literally doesn't even exist yet. They have placed a set of requirements with an, a, a goal to implement this to a final rule in a period right. of time that the technology doesn't even exist. There have, the, you can't look at any other proposed rule in the history of the agency that has put the cart before the horse in that manner. I mean, you even look at ADSB requirement, which is the 2020 mandate that we just passed here sure. back in January. It was a 10-year window and a period of that period of time to work up the technology, prove the technology, run beta tests, um, have a, a system of support in place. They haven't done any of that with this remote ID. So yes, it, it, your backyard flying is really a question mark as far as whether or not could con, could continue. Um, and it's a shame because we have seen significant strides in working with the air traffic organization side of FAA and approval of near airport operations. I just participated in a safety risk management panel back in December in Washington where we saw good criteria being developed for localized um, uh, aspects of air traffic going out and visiting flying sites and uh, allowing them to operate at different altitudes than either Lance would, would allow um, and in many cases, close proximity to airports. And it, it was a very good process. I think they're headed the right way. I'm really concerned that this rule, the remote ID rule, will derail all of that. So uh, you mentioned close proximity to airports, uh, airport out in Washington State, Ellensburg, Washington, Bowersfield, where I did the kind of the last half of my private and all of my instrument, uh, instrument training, I had a really active flying field right next to the airport. And it it was it was an absolute non-issue, and it was just never considered a problem. So as we look back on the history of of uh, you know free flight and the you know the early day, even the early days of the really clunky rudimentary RC, you know late thirties and forties and stuff in that that area, is there is there some history of interference uh, with full between full scale aviation and models, or are model airplanes out there slamming into uh, full size airplanes for the last eighty years? There is next to none. You look at the safety record of model aviation, and I'm talking traditional model aviation. Um, the the safety record is impeccable. When I was at this SRM that I just described back in December, we had a longtime senior air traffic controller that now works at Washington headquarters for air traffic. And his comment was really telling to me. He said, I feel bad for you guys in, in legacy model aviation. In so many ways, you guys are the definition of perfect integration into the NAS. Because for decades, you've operated right next to manned flight, in many cases, major hubs, of, you know, major airport operations. Sure. And we didn't even know you existed. That by itself is the perfect definition of integration. And now we're going to propagate rules to make you safer? That was his comment, and that was a very, very telling thought pattern that I went, wow, he's right. Um, it, it's not something we're going to roll back. I mean, look, be, because of technologies and because of, you know, the newer camera platforms and, and the activities that take place and continue to take place, uh, this rule, there are parts of it that are needed. And as we've described already, um, EAA as an organization certainly understands and supports those elements. 
We just have to do it in a way that doesn't wind up ripping up an industry and a pathway into man flight that's existed for decades. Yeah, I just wanted to make the point that you spoke very well to it, Sean, and uh, and how you're alluding to it, too. I mean, um, for decades, we had model aircraft or, or RC aircraft, right? Uh, model free flight, all that stuff, control line. Uh, and then sometime around 2012, 2013, they started being UAS, unmanned aerial systems, alongside, uh, you know, the rapidly uh, burgeoning drone market. Um, and I think, I mean, it's, it should be obvious to everybody. I mean, that's why we're having this conversation, right? Of is course. that suddenly the airspace is so much more accessible to people with a much lower level of skill and understanding. And there's been a real big failure on the part, uh, certainly on the part of the FAA, um, and this rule is a pretty shining example of it, of keeping model aircraft exactly coupled to UAS and not seeing a distinction between model aircraft and these these other rapidly emerging technologies now that sometimes touch model aircraft but oftentimes don't. Right. Um, and you know suddenly yeah there's this there's this need for regulation um, and RC aircraft are just being scooped up as part of that um, without really any any distinction made. It's I mean it's a it seems to me it's completely a uh, you know baby in bathwater situation. It, it is, yeah. Um, Sean, you've made uh, uh, several times when we think about what are commonly known as uh, you know drones, multicopters, and things like that. You've been pretty specific to call them camera platforms, and I think that's an interesting and important distinction. Um, is that uh, is that in your mind a key differentiator between? Uh, traditional legacy model aviation and and the the pr proliferation of vehicles that we're we're trying to make sure stay out of our way as full-scale pilots no i think more often than not it's the camera element that's associated with some of the problem operations okay. um I, I i'm not in any way interested in villainizing the camera as a tool because i see it used all the time from a recreational standpoint in a way that's really neat sure um and but certainly should be embraced so our own video department here at ea we, we will occasionally use them in photo and video absolutely craft and thing it gives you a great perspective absolutely it, it it's Unfortunately, it's a component that oftentimes is associated with a bad operator. Sure. Um, which I think nobody in the industry, um, you know, the latest technology quadcopter or the traditional balsa, you know, um, and, and silk and dope covered RC model, um, no, nobody wants um, to associate with the, the, the bad actors, but we certainly don't intend or want to villainize good operators and good operations. Um, I, I think the main differentiation for us is line of sight. You know, line of sight operations, whether it be with a camera and an, a, an observer there that's next to you to keep you um, operating safely, or traditional line of sight as has taken place for decades, um, is the key element for a definition of traditional. When and, and the fact that you have no ability to fly autonomously past that. You know, a traditional RC, a six senorita with an OS-25 on the nose, um, if you lose sight of it, it doesn't last at, at that point. It will very shortly thereafter wind up impacting the ground. Um, and many of us have experienced that firsthand. I'm not prepared to comment one way or another, but uh, let's just say I'm familiar with that. Uh, uh, in my case, it would have been a, a bigger SIG Cadet with the 40 size engine, but it only happened once and I... You know, you move on, you learn. It's it's a it's a discipline that takes continuous input 
and understanding of not only where the model is, but its orientation and its direction and what the control input is doing to it that really defines, you know, what we do and what uh, traditional model aviation is. So it seems to me, um, you know, Tom, you mentioned uh, the skill sets required. Uh, Sean, you've just drawn a, a, a very nice and, and clear distinction between uh, between something that's, you know, hands-on operation versus autonomy. Um, is that, uh, you know, is that going to be, do you think that'll be the key distinction going forward? It, would that help clarify these these definitions? In other words, I, simply put, if uh, if you need if you need skills to actually operate the the vehicle, it can't just go wander off on its own. Is that is that enough to make a a, a good distinction between the two classes? Well, I think Sean meant, I think Sean said it. A capability of flying beyond visual line of sight. Um, there's actually a clause in the law that uh, in the in the law that that um, was passed by Congress that re-enabled the FAA back in 2018 that some of this stuff is actually coming from. But there's actually a clause in there that um, allows the FAA to carve out. Not this, not out of this whole requirement, but it does kind of establish a legal precedent that um, there is a distinction with aircraft that are not capable. With I think it's advanced flight technologies was the was the term that was used. Okay. Basically, that you 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 yeah you can't fly it farther than you can see. Um, that's not perfect. That's not a perfect carve out because uh, you know there there are people out there that are operating you know like um, fixed wing um, FPV models and stuff like that. Sure. Uh, that's going to take a little bit more work to come up with a workable solution for them. I think I think we can get there, um, but it will uh, take care of gosh, eighty-five to ninety percent of the, uh, if not more, of the modelers out there. Sean, is that is that fair? Yeah, it, it is. I, I guess the only thing I would add is we have to date seen no willingness on the part of the agency to try to differentiate and and separate. So that's our that's our big uphill push, right, is right. To, to try to help them understand why that will be of great benefit for both model aviation and full-size aviation. So one of the things uh, that has struck me as is, is maybe interesting is, is a word for it. Um, talking about my situation, wanting to fly an RC family at home, and, and again, uh, my situation is not yet impacted by remote ID, uh, of course, but I am impacted by airspace changes, or uh, the fact that I'm in Class D airspace where I where I live. Um, but as I understand it, if I could take that that very same champ, I could basically take the servos out of it and throw it around my yard as a little free flight glider, and probably be fine. Is that true? Yes and no. That's one of the other things that we're going to be clearly spelling out in our comments to the NPRM. Is we as of yet have seen the FAA provide for a clear definition of whether or not free flight and control line is in fact affected by this these requirements or not. And if you look at the definition of a, an unmanned aircraft, by definition, even control line and free flight would fall within that. Really? And they need to be more clear on that. They need to, uh, now the air traffic organization has separated them. They said, we're not interested in control line and free flight from a airspace aspect. We don't consider that a safety risk to the NAS, and we don't need to spend time looking at that. But if you go back to the actual basic elements under the AUS line of business, the, 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 uh, the side of the FAA that has oversight of these policies, they have not clarified that. 
They have not created a, a clear distinction as to whether or not that falls in the requirements. If you look at TFRs, it literally calls out RC control line and free flight. It does, really. It does. Interesting. But in, but in this case, they are not making those distinctions. So by those definitions, and I, I mean, I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be uh, unnecessarily glib, but a paper airplane. I could fold a paper airplane and if you wanted to throw be extreme, it around the yard. Yes, if in you wanted, theory. If you wanted to take it to an extreme uh, level of the of the definition, that is that is the absurdity so, of it. I know it's kind of become a meme about the uh, the model aircraft, but uh, I, it's actually true. I mean, under the uh, under a liberal reading of the enabling language for the FAA to regulate the airspace, a frisbee would be an airplane, even a frisbee aircraft. Yep. Um, aircraft, excuse me. Yeah. Um, a couple of things then no and i don't want to i don't want to give anybody any ideas out there uh, i don't want to break us into jail but uh, where do model rockets fall into this so model rockets are the the model example <laughs> pardon the pun uh, they have a wonderful regulation that's already defining their types of operations and how they can do what they do and uh, it would be wonderful if we could find a similar, you know, de definition and uh, and level of descriptiveness for traditional model aviation. Yeah, Sean, that's uh, was that part one hundred one. It is one hundred one. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, basically, if you're operating under the uh, the safety code, I think of the is it the NMRA that's model. Uh, yes. NR, National Rocketry Association. Yeah. yeah. Um, that uh, yeah, basically, um, as long as you're operating under the safety guidelines, there's actually not, yeah, not a lot of um, of regulatory burden. And, those and they have wonderful definitions for obtaining waivers and being able to operate it, it clearly way into the NAS, up into the flight levels in some cases. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and it works fine. They have a great safety record as well. It's many similarities to traditional model aviation are in model rocketry. And, you know, the other thing that had come to mind is, uh, I, again, I don't want to argue us into uh, fewer freedoms, but uh, the, the free flight concept, you know, a lot of... Uh, um, I don't think you see this as much outside of maybe the competition arena, and John, you'd know that better than I would. But certainly, uh, when you think about um, the older, you know, free flight airplanes uh, uh, that you either maybe launch with a high start or have a uh, have a small motor on them, and then they're meant to soar, and and then they'll have the timer that you know will pop up the elevator and sort of bring them down. Um, Certainly, those things are meant to go to reasonably high altitudes. I mean, certainly into the hundreds of feet. It's it's amazing to me that something that is out of control is uh, can be okay in certain circumstances when an RC aircraft that you are actually controlling is not. Yeah, and that's actually probably the oldest discipline known in model aviation sure. is is the larger free flight, and we've seen those as far back as the 1920s and 30s. Right. And the dethermalizer that you talk about that right. is meant to recover the model uh, after a certain period of time of, of running, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, they, they, uh, they're, again, wonderful safety record, never pro caused a problem in the NAS, and now those are certainly even uh, clouded with whether or not requirements will be applied to them and uh, how they will continue to operate the way they've operated for a long time. Right. And Hal, I'm glad you brought up uh, free flight because I, I think one one thing we didn't maybe mention, um, we've kind of talked around it quite a bit, uh, but we didn't quite mention at the outset was, you know, why why is EAA involved in this right now? Why are we spending your membership dollars fighting this? Um, and uh, the um, the dethermalizer that Sean brought up um, is, is one of my favorite bits of, of experimental aviation trivia. Where where did that uh, uh, pop up uh, later on, Sean? 
well, Mr. Rutan himself, Bert Rutan, yep. in developing um, a Spaceship One. And the ability, the feather, what he called the feather recovery, uh, the whole concept came from his background, which he, as in many in aviation, got his start in modeling. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, I mean, there, there's a number of reasons why we're working on this. I mean, number one, it's it's the right thing to do for another for another community of aviation. But more importantly than that, we're all connected here. Um, you know, people get their start in model aviation. Um, and we also see this as, you know, if if remote ID becomes a widespread requirement for model aircraft, What's next for manned flight? Right. Um, you know, we've got the ADS-B mandate. We think that's sufficient. And, uh, you know, it's always, I think we've talked about this on the show before. I mean, it's, it's always been our position that there need not be any more equipage requirements for manned aircraft for, um, uh, for the future integration of UAS, you know, whatever, whatever form that takes. Um, and that's something that, you know, on the, uh, on the recreational side, we want to really make sure that this is this is right size, and as Sean says, is not a one size fits all kind of approach. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> now obviously, we're not uh, we're not the only organization out here sort of fighting this fight. Uh, I know it's been uh, it's been especially gratifying uh, for all of us, and you've called it out, uh, Sean. We've called it out in Sport Aviation Magazine that um, that people in the modeling community who may not have been uh, uh, necessarily directly involved with EAA are coming forward and, and thanking us for taking a stance. Um, but uh, obviously we have AMA out there. Um, they're a close partner of ours in, in, uh, in certain endeavors. And, you know, we're, we're trying to stick together and trying to stand shoulder to shoulder to, uh, to make sure that the right things happen. Absolutely. The Academy of Model Aeronautics, you know, has existed since the 1930s, and they're a, a substantial organization. They have uh, just under 200,000 members and uh, 2,500 clubs, uh, chartered clubs throughout the country, uh, many of which will certainly fall within this FRIA structure that we're concerned about how it's going to be ultimately orchestrated. Um, we've actually had good uh, support from AOPA. They recently put out a, a nice piece saying that they are fully supportive of our concerns and share them. Um, so certainly the man flight community is, is stepping up saying, hey, wait a minute, uh, this approach could do harm to all of us, and we, we've got to get this right. It's imperative we get it right uh, for a multitude of reasons that we've already talked about. So when this episode uh, episode airs, there's still uh, some time left in the comment period, the, the, the that comment period which was not unfortunately extended. Um, what is uh, what is the call to action for everybody out there listening who wants to uh, wants to help show support and make sure that uh, that this all goes the right way? Uh, I can start, and then uh, Sean, you can hop in here. Um, so we're going to be—we are in the process of writing um, our, our comments right now. It'll be a—it'll be a fairly lengthy, um, you know, comment package that will that will address a lot of this, and also, you know, propose workable solutions, workable um, alternatives to what the FAA is proposing. Um, we are working as hard as we can to get that done quickly. Uh, so hopefully, by the time this episode airs, the um, you know our our comments will be, or at least our talking points, uh, will either be public or very close to to being published. Uh, and then what we're asking, what we're going to be asking our members to do is basically take what we've done as far as our talking points and our positions, and put something into your own words that um, mirrors that, but also includes why this is important to you. 
um, and, uh, and, and does so in a, in a respectful manner. Um, and that's important because, you know, the FAA has a process when they disposition comments and comments that are uh, very similar um, are regarded with a lot less um, uh, importance than comments that are, you know, really uh, in your own words from the heart uh, kind of to, to you know, I don't know to use a little bit of flowery language, but you know what I mean. I, um, it was the same way when I worked as a legislative aide, you know, um, we got a form letter. I don't know if you just hit a button on a website and, you know, you, you uh, did that just to generate volume or if you actually care personally about the issue. Sure. Um, and that's, uh, that, that's what we need to, uh, um, to, to do. And then also, of course, be respectful. Um, you know, the, we need to, we need to represent ourselves in a positive light here. There's a lot of emotion about this NPRM. I can't say that we haven't shared a lot of the same emotion. Um, but that's not going to be productive in, uh, in, in getting a good final rule. Sean? And then to add to what Tom just described, the last piece that will, again, provide uh, helpful um, uh, snippets, if you will, is be specific on how you think it should be done in a different way. And w- what is an alternative solution to still accomplish the intent of what they're trying to do, um, but in a way that uh, is the right way to do it and the way that does not cause damage to significant uh, parts of traditional model aviation. Right. Now, I'm presuming that uh, when, uh, when we at EAA publish uh, our response, uh, we'll be proposing alternative uh, solutions as well. Absolutely. And, and we'll give those out to the membership um, on our, you know, through all of our channels uh, as, as helpful ideas of how they can, in fact, craft their comments too. Terrific. Uh, all right. Well, before we wrap it up, do either of you have anything you'd like to add? I'm good. I'm good, Sean. Good hell. I, I just appreciate the the time today, uh, and I hope that everyone listening to this, um, you know, please d- take some action. Uh, t- take our our recommendations. Uh, take our, our 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 snippets and develop your own comments back because we need to really let the agency know um, what the problems are with this proposal and how better ways can be accomplished to, to keep the, the, the airspace safe and secure and yet enable these, these significant pathways for flying um, that all of our youth and all, many of us uh, have shared and continue to share uh, throughout our aviator life cycle. Absolutely. Uh, well, with that, once, uh, once that uh, package is put together, you can watch for that uh, in our e-hotline, a weekly uh, email newsletter. Uh, should be uh, have plenty of visibility if you go to our website ea.org slash advocacy uh, expect that we'll have that stuff there and again if it's not up uh, by the time this episode airs keep an eye on it and it should be put together and out there soon so uh, Sean thanks so much for uh, for for joining us today Tom uh, thanks for playing uh, thanks for playing two roles being both guest and uh, uh, both guest and host that's much appreciated. And as I had mentioned on the, uh, the last episode, uh, I, I want to take the time uh, here and there to say thanks to those people out there who've taken the time to give us, uh, give us a review over on iTunes or any other place. Uh, most recently, or, or two most recent, uh, we have uh, somebody named Circle H who uh, says that they never miss an episode, and that's always uh, much appreciated. And 
Katie, I don't have my old man glasses on. It looks like Katie J304 uh, tells us to keep up the great work. And uh, thanks to people like them, uh, we are able to do exactly that. The only reason we're able to do this show is because people respond to it and take the time to let us know that they appreciate it and that they're listening. So keep that uh, feedback coming. Uh, iTunes, uh, feedback at ea.org, uh, on our blog when we post the episodes, inspire.ea.org. Uh, keep it coming. Let us know what you think. Let us know uh, what you'd like from future episodes. And with that, we look forward to catching up with all of you again the next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot.